paloma y ya voló. Oh, oh, ay, marinero navegó. Thank you, thank you everyone for joining us today on Out of the Margins. This is the third of, of a series that we have been doing and exploring the issues of immigration, of deportation, and the way that it lives in the history of the United States, but also the way that it lives in, in the current narrative and the current culture that we find ourselves in, the current status that we find ourselves in, in this country. So I am Leticia Peguero, and I am super excited to be joined by two amazing guests today. Today we're talking with Rich Limesider, Executive Director of Safe Passage, and with an old colleague and friend, Javier Valdez of Make the Road New York. So, Rich, Javier, thank you so much for taking time out of what I know are very busy schedules to join us today. Thank you so much, Leticia. Thank you. Yeah, so I'm, I'm really excited. We're just going to dive in, um, you know, to the conversation. Um, and so, Rich, maybe let's start with you. Tell us a little bit about Safe Passage. One of the things that I know your organization believes is that no child should have to face deportation alone. Um, so tell us a little bit about Safe Passage. What, one, what does it mean to have a Safe Passage, but also what, what does the work look like? Thank you so much, Leticia. And really, I appreciate this opportunity to be invited on this podcast because it is important work that we're all doing together. And it's also important to be able to tell these stories. So it's exciting to find new ways to, to share the stories with new audiences. Safe Passage Project is a nonprofit organization uh, focused in New York City and on Long Island. And at our most basic, we provide free lawyers to 708 amazing children who are at risk of being deported. And so that means we find uh, either one of our own staff attorneys or one of our 400 pro bono attorneys, and we walk with those children through the uh, immigration system for as long as two years, however long it takes mm -hmm. to take a child who's living in our community, uh, who the government is actively trying to deport, back uh, most often to some pretty horrific situations mm -hmm. in a home country. And we vigorously pursue every possible legal path to success to finding green cards for those kids. So just a quick, quick question. When, we, when you're talking about the children um, and the young people that Safe Passage works with, I know that a couple of years ago, there was a lot of press around the unaccompanied minors that were coming in through the southern border. Yes. Um, and so I just want to clarify for folks that are listening, is, are these the young people that Safe Passage work, works with? Is that who, you, who we're talking about? Yes, exactly. So this has been called the surge. And we have the privilege, you know, in New York of working very closely with Make the Road and other partners as well. But really like a light switch around the year 2014, what had been a steady but fairly low number of children who make their way by themselves from what's known as the Northern Triangle uh, countries in Central America of Guatemala, Honduras, and El Salvador, um, kids walk, take freight trains, find their way to the United States. Starting in 2014, that number went to 60,000. 
50,000. It's never been below 35,000 children a year uh, who are classified as unaccompanied minors. Interestingly, uh, despite so many uh, challenging laws and processes around immigration in this country, and I know what we're going to dive into all of that much more deeply, the laws that address these unaccompanied minors um, in some ways could be looked at as actually fairly humane. So if you cross the border without an adult and you're from a non-contiguous country, if you're not from Mexico, the, the law actually says you have to be released from the Department of Homeland Services custody to uh, the Office of Refugee Resettlement. You're immediately given a piece of paper that says you don't belong here, you're going to be deported, hmm. but while you're going through your case, you are allowed to live with a friend or family member. And because we have such a large adult Central American population in New York City and on Long Island in particular, more of those children have actually come up to our area, to the New York area, than any other part of the country. But two more sort of background points, which I think are important and not nearly widely enough known. The immigration court in the United States is not actually a part of the judicial branch. So we hear a lot about things that are going on uh, with immigration policy, of the power of the courts to try to block things that are happening from the president or the executive branch. Well, immigration court is not even officially called immigration court. It's actually called the Executive Office of Immigration Review, and it's an office of uh, the Department of Justice. So every single immigration judge has Jeff Sessions as their boss. And secondly, because immigration court is an administrative court, there's no right to a lawyer. So what so many of us have heard mm -hmm. on all the television shows, if you cannot afford one, one will be appointed mm -hmm. to you. Mm -hmm. It's true in this country in criminal court. It's not true in immigration court. Mm -hmm. And so the work that we talk about at Safe Passage and, and with so many others is we literally sit in the courtroom and we wait for children to show up who are obeying the requirement that they come to their first deportation hearing but they sit there without a lawyer and they have no right to a lawyer if they can't afford one. Hmm. And so what Safe Passage Project does is stand up and volunteer to be the lawyer for those children. Hmm. And then the hmm. very last piece is that for these unaccompanied minors who have faced such horrific challenges in their home country, um, uh, very violent environments, sexual assault, who have really challenging trips to the United States in the first place, um, it turns out that there are, in fact, paths to a green card to a permanent, stable citizenship status if they have a lawyer and can figure out the complexity of our system. And so when these kids are in court and they don't have a lawyer, they will only win their case 17% of the time. Mm. But if they have a lawyer, like one of the attorneys through Safe Passage Project, they will win their case and move towards getting a green card 85% of the time. And so that's the work we do. Well, thank you. Thank you for that. And part of what we've been doing over the past few months with these conversations is exploring the current narrative, right, and the intersections and the types of interventions that we as funders, but also as communities need to do to really understand the current climate of immigration, right, in the United States. So we have spoken to our friends at the Puente Human Rights Project, in Arizona, we've spoken with Maria Elena Incape of the National Immigration Law Center and Rose Kahn at the Immigration Resource Center in California. And so now I, you know, I'd love to bring in some of the work that you do, Javier, at Make the Road New York. And part of what you say is that you help build the power of immigrant and working class communities 
to achieve dignity and justice. And so we know, right, that there, we need to have multi-prong approaches to how we're doing this work. And so I'd love for you to talk a little bit about the work that you do and that Make the Road does um, as advocates um, for the immigrant community. Excellent. So first of all, thank you for having me on on the podcast and to talk about an issue that we deeply care about. Uh, Make the Road uh, helps build the power immigrant and working uh, class uh, communities of color across the, the state of New York to achieve dignity and justice. For many people, we do describe this organization as our home. Uh, mm-hmm. A lot of us are immigrants and Make the Road kind of provides the, the scaffolding or the support structure necessary for us to be able to achieve our uh, our own goals and ambitions as individuals, but then also as a collective. Uh, so we've been around for 20 years. We operate five community centers across New York State, three in the city, in Brooklyn, Queens, Staten Island, one in Long Island, and then uh, recently in Westchester. We see that it's critically necessary for us to be able to build collective power to push for systemic change and try to address some of the uh, issues that impact our communities, not just from the immigration lens, but from a racial justice lens, gender, and so on. The way that we do it is that we're a little bit different than some organizing groups because we actually do provide uh, direct services to our community. We thought it was critically important that our, our membership is able to access high quality services near their community uh, and get that level of holistic support. But we also wanted to be able to address uh, the needs of our of our community on the short term if they don't have heat or hot water, mm-hmm. if they have an immigration case or that so they can actually be with us in the long arch uh, in building power for long term. Inspiring in many ways is that since the Trump administration uh, came into power in January of, this, of last year, there's been a lot of fear and anxiety in our communities. Uh, mm-hmm. Folks are concerned the level of uh, enforcement we have been, seen before, and we just came from an administration that deported 11 million people. Mm-hmm. And we've had some history, but now we're seeing an escal- a level of escalation against our, our community. We had some anxiety that people would want to disconnect and not be as engaged. And actually, our numbers of people being engaged in policy campaigns and moving issues forward and hitting the street has increased drastically since then. Mm-hmm. And I think it's primarily from a place that folks do consider this to be their home and they want to fight for what is right. And they know this is a fight worth having. Uh, as many of our members, every day that they step out of their uh, their house, it could be the last time that they see mm, their loved ones, yeah. and they yeah. take that risk every day. But even with uh, understanding those risks, they know it's completely necessary yeah. for us to be pushing and pushing for what we want. Let's just not just push against something that we don't like. Let's actually try to create a vision yeah. of what we think uh, this country should be about and putting that positive vision forward, I think mm. is what's going to get us through these hard times. So I, I want to ask a clarifying question, Javier. I think I know what you mean, but I, um, you know, I, I live in the world of philanthropy jargon, and so I, I want our listeners to to understand what we're talking about. When Make the Road says we want to build collective power, what does that mean? Like when we are talking about building collective power, right, of immigrant communities and communities of color working class communities of color. What is the power that we're looking to build? We aspire to be and work very hard to try to make this as, as a 
participatory democracy as possible within our institution. The majority of our board of directors are members elected uh, from the base, and each one of them are representing different issue areas and committees across the five community centers. So in that sense, we have our own House of Representatives in the way that we get people from everywhere in different uh, opinions and visions and so on. The way that I see how we build collective power is that because we're an intergenerational institution, we do work across many sites. The work that sometimes we do around LGBTQ issues in Queens and supporting the trans-Latina community here mm-hmm. can be super impactful and supported by people that are working on economic justice or housing issues. Mm-hmm. And that we know that uh, in order for us to transform our communities, we can't just do it alone or in silos. So creating a lot of opportunities for our own community to come together and grapple with some of the hard conversations and for them to really understand is that they cannot only just work on the issue that they're passionate about, providing support and uh, alliance or some solidarity to others can really help transform our own community. And from that, uh, knowing that we can go at it alone on on the issues that we care about, for us to uh, fulfill our vision, Mm -hmm. we have to be able to get uh, strong allies that feel the same way or want to do work with us in the same movement uh, manner. Mm-hmm. Thank you. Thank you. So I, I have a question about vision. And I, you know, I often say that sometimes in the progressive community, you know, we, we sometimes don't actually talk about, right, the radical imagination of what would, what is the thing that we're, that we're fighting for, right? What does the United States that we want look like? Um, and so we, sometimes we have a hard time articulating that. And so I'm just really curious, what is this um, U- U.S., right, that you're fighting for at Safe Passage, at, at Make the Road? What would it look like so that we understand that it isn't just about fighting against something, as you said, Javier, but it's also about imagining, right, the transformation that needs to happen to creating that, that U.S., right, the United States um, that, that you're working for. So, Rich, I'll start with you. What, what would it look like? What does it look like? You know, Leticia, that's such a good question because um, I actually very often get asked or I'm in rooms where people, peers, colleagues are being asked, um, what's one thing you wish for? And, you know, honestly, we can be so in the day-to-day that the first answer that can occur is, I wish I had one more attorney, Hmm. or I wish I had an expanded office space because we have 22 desks and they're barely squeezed in. Um, But the truth is there's an answer to that question at almost every level. So, you know, sometimes when we're trying to think bigger, we say, well, we wish there was a right to counsel. We mean, we wish that every immigrant in the immigration court process had the right to an attorney, just like everyone does in criminal court. So that mm-hmm. regardless of how complicated or bizarre the, the laws are, that people had someone to walk them through the process. But even that, I think the way you articulate your question is not nearly far enough in terms of understanding the actual vision of the world that we would like to be a part of. I mean, the truth is our entire immigration system has been broken from day one, 
right? The, the, the... And, and when was day one? Right. Uh, you know, from, from your perspective, right? I, I uh, you know, I know we, we talked about this with, with Marielena and Rose, and, um, but I'm, I'm really curious from your perspective, when, when was day one of, of, the, of the immigration system? I mean, you can go back, you want to talk thousands of years, but for sure, Christopher Columbus didn't seem to have his papers in order. Um, I think we can all agree. So, you know, in, in my understanding, our immigration system, and certainly for the length of this country's history, has at a minimum often been in very serious conflict with the values that we have elevated. And I will say that I do, that that, that is important, that I think there are you know, articulated values that are meant to represent the best of what we in our community have been about. And there is that statue in the harbor, which really means something and has meant something to generations of people who were able to arrive in this country. And so, you know, the, the biggest picture vision is in many ways, not only uh, around immigration, but, you know, at the intersection of all the things that Javier spoke about so eloquently, how do we really, you know, build a society that allows us to treat one another with the dignity and the values that this country is, is meant to represent? Um, it, but at, at a minimum, our immigration system, it shouldn't be presuming guilt among six-year-olds who have walked uh, a thousand miles escaping something terrible. That, that's just uh, bizarre and ridiculous. Mm -hmm. And all of these things need to be torn up and, and, and built from scratch. Mm -hmm. And Javier, what, what is the vision that you are working towards? Um, uh, you know, what would it be, right? If, if we woke up tomorrow and I stepped out of my Bronx apartment and the U.S. was this other place, where would I be stepping into? It's, a, it's something that uh, we're grappling with more and more. I feel like we as an immigrant rights movement have to be thinking differently about how we engage this. For me, in the immigrant rights movement, what we're trying to do is change this very dysfunctional system. And we have a history in the United States and immigration policy that we're the country that after we get in, we close the door behind us. Yeah. And I think that one of the things I'm hoping to do uh, and that we are that generation that, that not only fixes the status of the people that are currently here, but keeps the doors open for the future flow of migrants that want to come to the United States and for them to be able to come here and, uh, dignified and legal manner so they can actually be with their communities. Uh, we know very clear that the reason that we're having the immigration debate is this concern that the immigrants that are coming are black and brown. We need to make sure that we bring a, a racial lens into this and call it out for what it is because their desire is to keep America white mm. and our desire is to make sure that people that are migrating here are able to do so via legal means, that those means are not uh, too cumbersome. Mm -hmm. uh, and I think we need to be able to do it in a way that people are able to be with their families and however they describe their families to be. In my long-term vision, we have to repair this dysfunctional system. We really got to be thinking about something that sometimes we don't talk about in the immigrants movement is that how U.S. foreign policy has impacted in my migration to this country. And we kind of say that's uh, a conversation that needs to happen in, in other spaces. And I think we got to bring it all in together and really have this holistic conversation about why these things have happened, not only domestically within the United States, but globally of how we uh, operate as a, as a country. Mm. 
So that's actually a great segue. One of my questions was going to be, you know, how does the current uh, rhetoric or and the current status of immigration, how is that related to sort of histories, history of U.S. foreign policy, engagement and involvement in the global South, right, and in Central America? And so I'm actually going to Thank you for that segue. You didn't know I was going to ask that. But I'm just really curious, right? Like, how, how do we talk about that in our communities? Because the, the sort of even saying U.S. foreign policy seems sort of really jargony and, and academic um, and sometimes could seem not that interesting. Um, and so just from your perspectives, right, you're, uh, you know, how do we begin to disentangle on the day-to-day work that, that we all do around these issues to really looking at the more global implications of many of the reasons of why people are migrating, right? Or people are leaving their homes or people are traveling, traveling in caravans, right? To, to make their way somewhere else. So how do we, in part, because you brought it up, I'm gonna start with you, but how do, how do we begin to make those connections in the day-to-day? The way that we would talk about it within our community would not be like what's the U.S. foreign policy, but it, for folks to describe the situation in the countries and how that those situations have occurred, and particularly with Guatemala, El Salvador, and Honduras lately, a lot of our members can really share how the drug policies of Southern America have pushed a lot of the drug trafficking into Central America, which then has created uh, narco states that have moved people here and people would share it just by their own experience and by being a, a young person in San Pedro Sula and the implications of that and why they decided to mig- uh, migrate. Way that folks do talk about it is that the impact that it had on the farming community in Mexico mm-hmm. after, after NAFTA and how yeah. a lot of them lived in very self-sustainable ways and that was not doable after NAFTA and that a lot of their ability to uh, sustain their families was gone. You know, it's pretty incredible that it, in Mexico, the, we actually are, uh, they're importing uh, corn from the United States, right? In a country that domesticated corn and made corn a staple. Now we're bringing corn from the United States, putting a lot of farmers uh, out of business. And I think folks are understanding of that. Climate change is real. Mm, and mm. climate refugees that come to mm-hmm. New York from the Caribbean or Central America has increased. We were seeing that because of what happened in Puerto Rico or Haiti mm-hmm. or mm-hmm. many other places. And I think folks are realizing that large economies such as the United States play a big role as it relates to climate and it is impacting our our countries of origin. I, I don't think I could disagree with any of that. I mean, it's just, it's all absolutely correct. And, you, you know, you, you would even add the focus and the rhetoric, particularly on Long Island, New York, uh, around the threat of the MS-13 mm-hmm. uh, gang, uh, the sort of the criminalization, the narrative mm-hmm. that turns uh, every young brown boy into a, a potential threat mm-hmm. um, in this country, uh, you know, even more than uh, than that narr- narrative had, had already been. Um, you can't talk about that without understanding the reality that the rise of many of the gangs in Central America was very specifically tied, and the evidence is pretty clear on this, to uh, enforcement in the 1980s where Los Angeles-based you know, gang members were 
uh, were deported to Central America and were then able to recreate many of the same structures in the countries that were fragile in that way. The, but the, the thing that I would layer on top of that is that as vital as it is that we in the movement know the truth and have our facts straight and really understand the causes and make sure we're all you know, very well aligned on the reality, I have very little confidence at this point in time that having the facts correct is mm. going to help us uh, win the, the battles that we need to win. Um, and, you know, in, and talking about climate change in general is an excellent case study. Uh, you know, my understanding is there's, there's not that much debate about what's going on. There seems to be a, a very large number of people in this country who are happy to act as though facts aren't facts. And so, you know, in that environment, I also think we're going to have to figure out ways to fight some of these battles without only relying upon the hope that if we could only share the facts with everyone as yeah. correct as they are, that we'll actually win. And, you know, one of the things that I heard someone in conversation say just a few weeks ago, which I'm going to borrow because I, I thought it was potentially a really important and interesting uh, kind of perspective is that the United States national anthem ends with a line about being the home of the free and the land of the brave. Mm -hmm. The notion that freedom and bravery may actually mm -hmm. be required to go together. And so, you know, it's not about having to try to somehow produce a statistic that no immigrant will ever commit a crime or ever get in trouble for smoking a joint out on a street corner. And it's definitely not about trying to identify who are the worthy immigrants and separate somehow that group from unworthy immigrants. And that, you know, that only DACA kids are beautiful and everyone else, you know, who has any kind of uh, yeah. outstanding arrest is, is somehow that's fine. We'll just cut them off. But simply to say that if we're going to be a society that is going to hold ourselves to these pretty wonderful ideals, then that also requires bravery. And it requires understanding that people make mistakes um, people get second chances, um, but that, you know, that, that, that those two things have to go together. That if you want to have the freedoms and the ideals and the, the respect for how we're going to treat one another, then you also actually have to have some bravery and understand that we're, we're not going to have communities where no crime is ever committed. Um, and that's just, that's, mm. that's going to be part of it. it. It's not true for communities that consist of, you know, only American citizens, and it's, it's not going to be true for other communities either. So, you know, and I want, I want to talk a little bit about the gang decrees, which, you know, you've mentioned um, a little bit, and, and you both have talked about Long Island, um, where, you know, we hear quite a bit uh, on the news about MS-13 and the way that, that that's manifested in Long Island. So I want to talk about that a little bit, but I want to, I just want to, uh, you know, in inject a point here, because I think this, this question of having communities that are crime-free is part of the sort of broader challenge of which communities are we talking about? You know, and I think, you know, we, we can sort of broaden this and, you know, both in like, right, in when we're talking about gender issues or other, but it, here to stick to sort of immigration and racial justice, you know, when we're, when we're talking about communities that are, let's say, to use your language, uh, rich, crime-free, we're actually just talking about, right, a certain communities. Like, we don't really believe communities anywhere are ever going to be crime-free, but there is, I think, yeah. a certain level of tolerance, uh, a sort of implicit uh, idea 
right? That certain communities are crime ridden, right? And need to be over policed and, and over uh, incarcerated and deported. So I think for me, it's always really important, right, to lift that up because I think, you know, when we look at the over-incarceration of young people of color, I mean, we see huge disparities across the country, um, even though we know that the data tells us that the, that the sort of adolescent crime happens at, the, at about the same rate, right, for young people of color. And I know it's this notion of, like, who are we targeting when we're thinking about criminal behavior? Um, talk a little bit about the gang decrees, right? Um, so, you know, there's been quite a bit of, of attention from the media, but then also attention paid to this idea, right, that there's this like ever increasing gang problem that's coming in with with young people that are crossing the southern border. So, I, you know, just because you're both working in these spaces, I, you know, I'd love to sort of shed a little light, one, on what are we talking about here? And two, is there a growing problem? Or is this just one more mechanism, right, of, of, of talking about, of coded language to talk about immigration? I do think that there's a lot of coded language uh, that is being used here in order for them to push policies that target our communities. And I think they're being uh, unapologetic of doing so in a way that sometimes not as clear of what their intent is. Now it's been it's made very clear that they're using this as a means to really push our communities out and criminalize them. In Long Island, uh, we have had young people that are members of Make the Road who have been for potential gang affiliation. One case in particular, this young person, he was he was said to be involved in a gang. They detained him, moved him ac across the country, and it took us eight months to get to him back. And you know, and nothing was ever. He was never fully charged, but just because of the of a color that he was wearing and uh, the group of kids that he was with, he was said to be part of a gang. So mm -hmm. it has created a sense where our folks have a bullseye in their back uh, in the way that people perceive them and talk to them. And nobody really, again, talks about the root issue of why we're in those situations. Nobody talks about the lack of uh, investment in our communities for so many years of time in education and after school programming. And in Long Island, particularly, one of the main issues that our youth are facing is the lack of a employment opportunities. Mm -hmm. So all those things are never discussed. Uh, and when we do try to talk about them, everybody brings up the fiscal crisis or that there's no resources. Yeah. But there always seems to be a way for them to find resources to crack down or whatever rhetoric they use to target our communities. And that's, I think, the overall frustration and mm -hmm. impact that it's having on our community. It is creating a chilling effect where people sometimes are victims of crimes and they're not going to the authorities because they don't think that it's a safe space for them to go to and it can lead to other uh, consequences and that in itself is just not good policy. So those are some of the things that I've been seeing is the heavily targeting of our young people. We call it driving while brown. Uh, a lot of these counties are, or townships, the way that they make their money is through traffic court. Yeah. And the people that are most impacted by that is our community. And because driving is so essential, our folks just have to do it. And they get ticketed at a high rate, or it can then lead to further escalation in the, in the criminal justice system. 
that can then lead to deportation. So I'll stop there, yeah. uh, but those are some of the experiences that yeah. I've seen. And that was what we saw uh, in Ferguson, right? Um, and so, you know, sort of post uh, Michael Brown, there was some investigation and it was in part, right, that the counties made their money from stopping um, the African-American community, the black community uh, at much, much higher rates while driving, right? Um, so, so I think it's a, it's a, it sounds like it's a similar situation that you're talking about in Long Island. Rich, anything you want to add here about, you know, the current sort of conversation uh, around the, you know, the imminent threat of gangs, um, you know, from, from young people coming in from, from Central America? I think it is um, a tool that is being used to, in many ways, first and foremost, dehumanize and so, you know, dehumanize immigrants of color uh, in a way to sort of say, well, um, we don't have to offer this set of people the same protections, the same rights. And as it turns out, in many cases, the way our laws are currently set up, that is, in fact, the truth. You know, a very similar story. One of our clients went down the street from his mother's house, uh, was picked up by the federal government, bundled into a van, flown probably to the same the same facility. Uh, was it Yolo? Yes, Yolo. Yeah. Yep. And so this is you know Arnold was also was at Yolo. Initially, the government's claim was that not only could they detain him based on the fact that one of their investigators surfed his Facebook page and saw a picture that he had a tattoo on his calf of the Virgin Mary, and they decided that that was, you know, sufficient evidence of gang affiliation, enough to uh, arrest and detain this child, but also that they didn't actually even need to have a hearing, that they never really needed to provide proof in any sort of legal way, and we just had to sort of sit on it and deal with it. Um, and so we had to work with partners, including the ACLU, file a national class action lawsuit against Jeff Sessions that, um, and you know, we are not a national advocacy community organizing organization. It's so incredibly important to have partners like that. We, we really come in every day and see our work as focusing on those 708 kids. But in this case, the only way to, to be vigorous in our advocacy for Arnold was to take it to that level and wound up not only you know, winning a, a, a federal case saying that Arnold had a right to a hearing, but that every other kid in that situation has a hearing. And so whereas we usually don't reveal the name of any of our clients, in this case, it's become a public name. There's now such a thing as requesting your Saravia hearing because that's Arnold. Um, and so there, you know, there are attorneys now across the country who are saying, I demand my client's right to a Saravia hearing. Mm -hmm. And amazingly, that was uh, because of the fight we had to make, you know, on behalf of this one, this one kid who, again, was was eventually released just in time for Christmas. So it is a it's a it's a national battle and a long term battle, but it's also very real and discreet day to day uh, for individuals. So what's the work, you guys? I mean, we are in this situation, right? We are in this current political climate. And I think for many of us um, that really, really care and are part of these communities, you know, you, you sort of feel a little bit, um, frankly, depressed, right? When you like listen to yet one more thing. Um, what is the work that needs to happen? Like, you know, there's people that are listening to us, you know, 
what would you tell them is the work that needs to happen? What does the work look like? We've been talking about multi-pronged approaches, right? So there's litigation, there's organizing, there's direct services, um, there is, you know, sort of national advocacy, right? So, so just from, from your perspectives, both as advocates and as community members, um, of your respective communities. What is the work that needs to happen, taking into consideration that we are in, in the current political climate that, that we all exist in right now in this country? Uh, you know, the answer, I think, unfortunately, has to be all of the above, Leticia. Mm. Um, what I will say is there's still good news every day, and there are wonderful people that we get to work with every day. And this morning, I came into the office, and we had a thick package from the government approving uh, refugee status for one of our clients, which means this, you know, amazing 11-year-old girl is going to have um, you know, pretty soon a green card and a stable life in the United States in a way that, you know, she was only dreaming and hoping about um, a year ago, just like so many other millions and tens of millions of immigrants to this country. And so, you know, just in terms of being someone who uh, gets to work with 21 other incredible professionals who are, who are trying to come into the office and do this work every day, um, but like so many of us just reading the paper, it is important to take a moment and celebrate those victories and understand that there are good things that are also happening. And, and Javier started with talking about, you know, what it's meant in terms of mobilizing, getting people energized about fighting some of these fights, which is, which is another major victory. But in terms of the work, I, it does, I think, need to be all of the above, the direct service work, the community organizing work, the litigation work. But I will also say because you mentioned earlier, uh, Leticia, about you know your background in philanthropy and then um, having some of those perspectives, one of the really special things um, is that uh, Make the Road New York Safe Passage Project and a few other nonprofits uh, here in the New York area are actually a part of a coalition that is specifically focused on providing legal services to these unaccompanied minors. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And in many ways, this coalition is possible because, a, uh, because the, the government of the city of New York and a couple of foundations, um, in this case, the, the Robin Hood Foundation, the New York Community Trust, came together and said, let's really build this coalition to do some of this work. And, you know, in my own experience, compared to some other social policy issues, Immigration nonprofits are actually often on the small side. Um, we, we happen to be a, 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 an area of the progressive movement that in some ways may be more fragmented than some others. And so whereas coalitions and working together are always an important strategy in movement building, I think in this case, it's even more important so that we can work together and, and punch above our weight. It's, it's why it's been exciting for Safe Passage Project to work with Make the Road and others. Um, but it's also something uh, that I think can continue to, to have benefits. Thank you. Javier, what's the work? No, I think, I think all of us that do this work have to be optimists uh, by trade. And I feel like that is what makes us good organizers to know that there is a, a path here for, for change. The thing that I do think is like, and we have seen over particularly the last uh, year and a half is that the tide is 
turning like we are not in the place right now to help shape federal policy mm-hmm, but mm-hmm. the number of policies that have given broader protection to the immigrant communities created uh, a sense of you know broad security uh, or safety to I've never seen it like ever before like there's some policies that I've been pushing in New York City and New York State for over 15 years that last year we were able to move six of them that mm-hmm. we waited for a very long time. So I think it's also galvanizing organizers and elected officials to take more risk and mm-hmm. then for them to push them further and be unapologetic about it, about them having to do more. And I think we have been seeing some of that. The number of people that are joining the movement has been tremendous. And I think mm-hmm. people that are from our communities that just want to do more and be more involved so the, the pipeline, activists, organizers, lawyers coming into the work, I, I haven't seen this since 2006, 2007 uh, moment in the immigration rights mm-hmm. uh, community. And that to me just gives me a lot of hope that we're get, getting this surge of new talent and expertise in our, in our movement. So not only are we doing the good stuff, good work at the city and state is being replicated and some states are trying to fight with each other about who's going to do more to protect mm-hmm. the immigrant community or invest more, et cetera. Mm-hmm. And I think you're going to start seeing that in New Jersey and New York. New Jersey is probably going to pass this pretty soon about <laughs> all the great things that they're doing, mm-hmm. But which is good, healthy uh, competition. Yeah, yeah. But again, it's, it's a leadership development piece of it that I think is really going to help shape how we move forward. And for us as a, uh, as a movement, I remember how many of us would use the word uh, the words white nationalist, white supremacist, mm-hmm. in talking about federal policy. And I think now it's there and we're doing it. And I feel like bringing that racial justice lens to Im- immigrant rights work is going to be critical for our success moving forward. Yeah. I, you know, I, we're, we're really sort of down to the end, but, I, you know, I want to bring in, um, Something that actually in our in our last podcast, um, I, I believe Rose Khan uh, of the Immigra- Immigration Resource Center said, and one of the things that you know, the, based basically on this point, Javier, of like how do we bring the racial justice lens right to the immigration work? One of the things that she says all the time is legalization is not enough because we're oftentimes in the narrative in the broader narrative that we hear about the immigration movement it's about right how do we how do we get people documented um, and that sort of becomes the wedge and one of the things that i think she she highlights is that the overcriminalization over policing of other communities that have been here, right? The, the Black community, the African-American community, um, like legalization has not stopped some of the issues, the economic justice and the racial justice issues that we see. And so then how do we, those of us that are, you know, part of mm-hmm. the immigration movement really begin to have a, a, a view that's a little bit more expansive than just legalization, right? That's one step, but sort of reminding ourselves, right, that other communities are under attack as well without this this issue of whether they're citizens or not. So, you know, I really appreciate you bringing that in to the conversation. Sadly, folks, we are out of time. We end with a quote uh, all the time. I have a good one today, but I just want to thank Rich Limesider 
and Javier Valdez for joining us on Out of the Margins. Thank you both very, very much. Thank you for your knowledge. Thank you for sharing your time. And thank you most of all for the work that you do um, in New York every day for the communities that we care about and that we're a part of. The quote today is from Maya Angelou who recently uh, we celebrated her 90th birthday and she said the thing to do it seems to me is to prepare yourself so you can be a rainbow in somebody else's cloud somebody who may not look like you may not call god the same name you call god if they call god at all i may not dance your dances or speak your language but be a blessing to somebody, somewhere. That's what I think. I think you both are a blessing and a rainbow in the clouds of our communities and for lots of people. So thank you both for joining us. Thank you, Rich. Thank you, Javier. We look forward to our continued work together. Thank you so much, Leticia. Yeah, thank, thank you, you so guys. much. And appreciate for sharing that quote. That was, that was beautiful. Thank you. Thank Thank you. You've been listening to Out of the Margins. As always, friends, I want to thank the team at the Andrus Family Fund for helping us pull this together and our wonderful friends at Soul Design. That's S-O-L Design who put music and edit and uh, make this sound wonderful. So thank you all very much.